went back and counted this week. I didn't realize how long we had been in this particular chapter, but this is the 11th week we've been here, and it will be the last. And so we'll finish our study on God's love, uh, the love that he's given to us, the love that we give to one another, uh, that Paul so wonderfully describes in this chapter. Uh, This will be the conclusion to that. So we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13. But I'm going to read the whole chapter as we take it in as a whole one last time. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Heavenly Father, we come today delighting in the love that you have given to us in Christ. We thank you for this time of worship thus far. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to worship as we hear your word, seek its truth. We pray that your spirit would pour out in our hearts, that we would delight in you, love you in return, but also, Lord, seek to love one another. That's what you have called us to do as a church, and you say that all will know that we are your disciples if we have love for one another. Lord, I pray that this church, these people, that we would love and be known as disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his strong and wonderful name. Amen. As we conclude this series in 1 Corinthians 13, I want to spend just a minute going over a review of sorts of the entire chapter. has been broken down in some ways into helpful parts. Really, there's three, uh, there's three parts to this message that Paul has given to this church in this particular chapter. We started with verses 1 through 3 many weeks ago, where Paul tells us about the indispensability of love. It is the one thing that is necessary in the Christian life. He says you can possess powerful gifts of the Spirit, but without love... You're nothing. You can have a life that's filled with good works. And you can do all those things in a way that makes yourself look good. 
rather than out of love for other people. And if you do, we're told that you gain nothing from the Lord. Love has to be the driving force of what you are, what you say, what you do. And if it is not, in the end, everything that you will have done will be empty. Verses 4 through 7 tell us about the characteristics of love. What is this love? We're supposed to, we're, if we're supposed to have love as the driving force of all that we say, do, and think, it's important that we understand what it is, but also understand what it's not. So these verses have taught us that, what it means for love to be patient and kind, that it's not selfish, that love does not keep a record of wrongs, it does not hold grudges, it delights in the truth, and so on. We spent nine weeks looking at all of these characteristics. And now we come to the end. And we see the superiority of love. Paul sums up that thought there in verse 13. He says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest, the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest, the ultimate or superior characteristic in the Christian Faith and hope are important to our walk here on earth. They are vital, aren't they? They press us forward in hardship. We learned about that last week. They remind us of future promises that God has given to us in Christ. They cause us to reach for the hem of Jesus' garment. We place our eyes on the cross instead of on our circumstances. We need faith. We need hope for all of these things. But we are told that love surpasses all else. But why? Why is that? This morning I'd like for you to see two reasons why that is from our text. One is implicit. It's embedded in the words that are there. The other is explicit. It's clearly seen from Paul's argument. So first I'm going to start with the implicit reason for love's superiority. And the implicit reason is that knowledge and all other spiritual gifts, they serve love. The spiritual gifts are handmaidens to love. And that includes knowledge. Maybe you've heard me say it a few times as we've gone through this letter, but that the Corinthian church, they were a prideful church. They were quick to boast in themselves. They wanted to be the greatest. They were selfish. And they had the idea that the greatest Christian was the one who had the most amazing gifts. And usually the most amazing gifts are the ones that you can see outwardly. Things that people can see you doing. Speaking a word of knowledge, speaking in tongues, prophesying. Those things that would be done out in front to give instruction to other people. They wanted to be those who could be seen with the greatest gifts and then therefore be the greatest Christians. They love to be, be told, isn't she special? Isn't she wonderful for what she does? I cannot do the things that she does. They love to hear things like that about themselves. They had the idea that those who had these gifts were especially near to God or mature in the faith. But what they were failing to understand is that those gifts of the Spirit were only given to build the church up in love. That was their purpose and so if you were a person in those days who had the gift of prophecy, what was the purpose of God giving you that gift to communicate to other people? Was it so that that prophetic person could have other people marvel 
at what he could do? No. That's what they wanted, though. That's what the flesh wanted. Was it so that you could know more things about God? Is that why the gift of knowledge was given? Partly. God doesn't want you to learn truth simply so that you could have more things in your head. Maturity is not measured by how much you know, but by how much you love. What you know is supposed to be converted into the currency of love. When you travel to a foreign country, your dollars, how many of you all have been to a foreign country before and had to have your dollars converted? Some of you all have. You know that when you get there, actually some countries do take dollars. They like the dollar a lot more than their own currency, but that's going to ruin my illustration. So when you travel to a foreign country, you have to convert your dollars into the currency of the place that you've gone to. In my drawer at home, I've got some Chinese yen. I've got some Burmese kyat. Neat-looking little pieces of paper. My kids like looking at them. They like holding them. They think they're, they're pretty cool. And I'm sure they would look nice in a collection of some sort, but they have no real value here on your own. If I were to go over to the Rite Aid, which I'm at just about every day, and I presented them a piece of paper with the Chinese president on the front, they would just look at it and kind of laugh. They don't know what to do with that. They've got to be converted into dollars. Knowledge has not been given to the church to be collected for show. On its own, in a sense, it is kind of worthless. It has to be converted into love. And so when we collect knowledge just for the sake of collecting it, there is something that usually grows alongside of that knowledge. It's pride. Our heads start to get big. We start to think that we're better than other people because of how much we know. That's what was happening inside the Corinthian church. The gifts of the Spirit are meant to grow the church in love for one another. They serve love. And so the more that you know about God, so God does want you to know more about him, but why? So that you will grow in love for him, delight in him, worship him. The more that you learn about what God has done for you in Christ, What does he want for you to have that knowledge for? So that you will delight in his son. That you will love Jesus Christ more supremely and grow to be more and more like him. And what was Jesus like? He was a man who was filled with love for his neighbor. And that's what we are to grow into as we gain more and more knowledge. And so knowledge is meant to serve love. That's what should be happening in this church as God's word is taught to the children and to the youth and to the adults on whatever day we gather or if you gather with somebody else in this church as you gather around God's word and you grow in your understanding of it. It is meant to produce something, not just more knowledge rattling around inside of our heads. It's meant to produce love. Love for God, love for one another. Paul told the church at Corinth this just a few chapters before. He said, knowledge puffs up, 
but love builds up. They were a church that collected knowledge but found themselves being puffed up, overinflated with the knowledge that they had. They wanted to put that on display for selfish purposes. Sin was hijacking what God meant for Christ-likeness. And sin still hijacks the spiritual gifts in the church today, or at least it can, if we allow for it to. In our country, great teachers and Christian speakers and authors, they're able to make a name for themselves with the gifts that God has given to them. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad to have a name that a lot of people recognize, but I think you know very well that if that's somebody's pursuit, if that's what they're wanting to do with the gifts that God has given to them, to make their names bigger, to have bigger audiences, bigger paychecks, more notoriety by using those gifts, that is what sin wants to do, to grab hold of those gifts and turn it in for selfish purposes. It still happens in the church today. People want to make a name for themselves with the blessings that God has given to them. That's because those people have forgotten that the gifts were not meant for self because they're so special to God, and they are special. Those gifts have been given, though, because the church is so special to God, and he wants to make that church, us, into the likeness of his son. And so your gifting, whatever that is, and everybody here who is a Christian in some way or another has a gift given to them by God. But that gift has been given not to puff up yourself in any way, but to build up the people around you, to serve them in some way or another, to make them more Christ-like. That's why God has given those gifts to this body. And so we need as a church to understand that and to apply that so that we can be more built up, mature in the faith, and love for one another. Because Sin doesn't just hijack our spiritual gifts out in the larger sphere of Christianity. That can happen right here in our midst too, can it not? We can want to be marked out as more special than other people because of what we are able to do. Maybe teaching ability, service ability, whatever that is. We want people to notice us because of how progressed we are and our, and our gift that was never God's purpose. And that's the implicit teaching that is here in this text, here in 1 Corinthians 13, that knowledge and any other spiritual gift that God has given to his church is meant to serve other people in love. It was not ever given to us to serve self. And so may we take a warning from the Corinthian church as we read this chapter here and see these verses that this same thing can happen inside of us. Pride can come along and hijack our gifts instead of using them for the intended purpose that God gave them to us. But there is a clear, explicit reason given here why love is superior. Paul states it in verse 8. He repeats it again even more clearly in verse 13. He says, first, love never ends, in verse 8. And then he goes on at the very end to say the greatest of these is love. And those are brackets of a sort for his main argument that he has here in this text. It's that love is eternal. It goes on forever and ever. But the gifts of the Spirit are temporal. They're only meant to be used here on earth. But love will go on and on, ripple into eternity. Now, I don't know how much you remember about math class from your teenage years. 
I'm sure many of you all have probably tried to forget those classes, but I'll bet you remember what the symbol means. It has a dot and then an arrow that goes off to the right. Dan, can you throw those up on the screen? How many of you all remember what these two symbols mean? Steve Supernaut remembers. Norm, you're an engineer I was hoping, you know. (laughs) So some people might even have to still use some of these things. But the one with the dot to the arrow off to the side means something begins right here and then it goes on forever and ever, indefinitely or infinitely. Now, the one there below it uh, has two dots, or in sometimes they'll have brackets on either side. It means it starts here and it ends here. I think Paul is arguing something like that here in this text, that God has given love to his church but it is supposed to continue on and on forever into eternity. That's what love is. It is infinitely given to the church of God. But the spiritual gifts were given at point A, at a particular point in time when you became a Christian, but they will also end at a particular point in time that he tells us about here in this passage. So one, love goes on forever and ever. That is his argument of why it is superior. It lasts forever. It never ends. That is why it's the greatest. But the spiritual gifts were given to serve love for a period of time only here on earth. These verses here that are in between verses 8 and 13... They're used by some to teach that all miraculous gifts end when the perfect or the completed canon of Scripture comes. So when the Bible is fully arranged and assembled and is given to the church, that that is when the perfect has come and these miraculous gifts will end. But that was not the case in the first century. They didn't have the completed canon. So therefore, they needed these miraculous or more special gifts And so some would teach that that is what Paul is saying here in these verses, that those gifts will expire when the full canon of Scripture is given to the church. But that has nothing to do with Paul's argument here. That is not the perfect, that is not the fulfillment, that is not the completion that he is talking about. He's not talking about the completed canon of Scripture. What Paul has in mind and is clear here. The time of fullness, the completion, is the day when Jesus Christ comes back for his bride and brings his church home into his own kingdom in heaven. When that day comes, we will go to a place, he is saying, where we will know all things fully in comparison to this place where we are only scratching the surface of what true knowledge is. In that day, we will no longer need certain gifts that the Spirit has given to the church. We will no longer need teachers of God's Word to better understand Him. That means that in that day, I will need new employment. I will not be a preacher of the gospel and building up the church as a teacher any longer. I hope I continue to grow in my understanding while I am there. But we will no longer need these particular gifts of the Spirit in that heavenly place. Why? Because you will have a heavenly mind there and you will have a heavenly eyesight while you are there. We no longer are clinging to things by faith. We no longer need to be built up by word of knowledge and prophecy and teachers and things like that. We will have it all while we are there together in heaven. That is the argument that Paul is making in these verses. And he compares our ability to understand knowledge here on earth to looking into a mirror while you're in the dark. How many of you all have ever done that before? You don't see a lot, do you? You see little bits and pieces if you're right there, if you've got enough light 
in the room. You see dull outlines, only in part, not all, not fully. That's what he's saying there. While we are here on earth, it's as if we see things in a mirror dimly or darkly. We have some sight, but not all sight. And then he goes on to describe that we're like children here. Children don't have the capacity to understand things that their parents do. And so is the difference then between our ability to understand the things of God while we are here to what we will understand there. We'd like to think that we're something here with all that we know when we are just children. We're infantile in our ability to understand. But you know what? That is a good thing. That makes me marvel at what we will know there. God has given us some knowledge here. I believe we're going to learn forever and ever right there before God. He's going to teach us forever about who he is. What things do we not know right now? It's fascinating to think about. God will delight to open up our minds forever and ever. But here Paul tells us that we are like kids. We're like kids. Think about what you knew as a kid. What did you know? You knew the inside of your room. You knew your own home. You knew your street. That's probably about as far as your parents would let you go. That was your world. Those are the things that you knew, like the back of your hand. But the rest of the world out there was blurry and a mystery. And even right now, as much as we know with the technology that we've got in our pockets, you know, we know more, in a sense, than anybody else who has ever lived. Our heads are filled with all kinds of knowledge that is quite useless to us. You can pull out your phone right now and know what the weather is like in Bangkok, Thailand, as if that really even matters to us in cold buffalo. But we can know things, can we not? But really, the whole world is blurry and a mystery, especially if we've not traveled to it and seen it for ourselves. But when we were children, we only knew very little. You did know your room, you knew your house, but you didn't know politics. You didn't know what economics was. You didn't understand how food got to your table from where it was farmed. And many of us probably still don't know how it gets there. It just shows up at the grocery store. But we don't know anything about what's going on out there in the world to how it gets to us. Our capacity is so small, was so small as children when we were children, and is so small right now as we are children here on earth in comparison to what we will know and understand in heaven. Our capacity for understanding the complexities of the spiritual realm are so limited right now. We know so little. We also know so little about God. We struggle with even really the most basic things about his nature and that he's eternal. We have a hard time grabbing hold of that word eternal because we are finite. We started at a particular point in time. God did not. There's something about my brain that just doesn't do very well with eternal. I can't grasp it very well. I struggle to understand that God is three persons. I know that it is essential to understand that there is a holy trinity. But try to get me to parse all that out with perfection. I cannot. 
that God is one and that he is also three. That he is three persons in one Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're separate, but they're the same and they're together. My mind struggles with that. Does yours? We know almost nothing about the spiritual realm or heaven or the concept of eternity and what we will be doing in eternity. You know, we talk about it. That's why I read it today. I read Revelation 21, and there's something about heaven that's described. Some of that very well could be metaphor. You know, it could be exactly what our eyes are going to see, but it doesn't tell us what we're going to be doing there for eons and eons and eons. When we wake up in the morning, what are we going to do? Do we think we're going to be standing around the throne praising God forever? No, we're not. That's the picture that we have. I believe we're going to work and we're going to build and we're going to help God rule the universe. That's what we're going to do. But what does it look like? What exactly am I going to wake up and do? God does not tell us what we are going to do. We know so little. We're kids. We're babies with the knowledge that we currently have, with what we will have. So much is outside the realm of our minds right now. And the gifts that God has given to the church today, the spiritual gifts that he has given now, are meant to teach us what we need to know about him now. God tells us all that we need to know. And one day he is going to open up his treasure chest and let us see inside of it. And we will then know fully, but that is not today. Until that day, we continue to build one another up and prepare one another for that day where we will meet him face to face and know fully as we are fully known. But right now, we're just like children. And all we need to know is to love our parents in a very simplistic kind of way. That's where we're at in our relationship with God. Learn to trust him. Learn to obey him. Learn to love him with the gifts that God has given to his church. We slowly, slowly grow here in love by the knowledge that he gradually hand feeds to us like a mom does with her baby. And over time, we do grow much more slowly than we'd like. But in this passage right here, it tells us there will come a day when he gives us full knowledge. That's glorious. Wonderful to think on. And it's something that should cause us to delight in our God. He is wise. He knows exactly what he is doing. Sometimes, even as children, we want to speed ahead beyond what we're capable of. Think that we're far more mature than we really are when a parent has to say, slow down, pump the brakes, you're not ready for that. And that's the way that God is with his children here on earth. Slow down, pump the brakes. You are not ready just yet, but one day you will be, and I will turn you loose into those heavenly places where you will see all things and delight in me fully. And even in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that he will delight to show us the mysteries that he currently has hidden for us. He can't wait to do that, but not yet. Not yet. While we're here, we have a particular way And he has given us those gifts for that particular way of growth. So, when we get there, what will that knowledge do? Well, I've already confessed that I don't really know. I don't know what we're going to do with all that knowledge. I don't understand everything that we're going to do when we're there. My mind is way too little for that. 
But what I do know for sure is that knowledge, that fullness of knowledge will lead us to love fully. So when we know fully, so if knowledge is meant to serve love while we are here on earth, when God does open up that treasure chest of knowledge and give it to us and dump it out on us, what will it do? It will lead us to then love fully, unhindered, unhinged, complete. That's what we will do in eternity. So there is something that we know that we will do in heaven perfectly and fully and forever, and it will be love. Love God and love one another. We'll be unhindered in that ability to love one another there. There will be no place in heaven that we will go that we will not be surrounded by love in thought. There's no thought that you will ever have in heaven that will be badgered by sin and distracted by trifling things. You will always think thoughts of love toward God, and you will always think thoughts of love toward the people that are around you. Aren't you glad that nobody can read your mind while you are here on earth? In, the, in heaven, it will not matter. Because everything you think of in that place will be filled with love for God or for your neighbor. Your mind will overflow with knowledge, and your world your entire world that you exist in will overflow with love. I do think Jonathan Edwards said it best in his very simple way. He says, heaven is a world of love. It is currently a world of love. And there will be a day when you are plunged into that world of love. And it will be all that you know. And Paul tells us here that it is the place where love will never end. That is why love is superior. That's why it is the greatest. It will go on and on and on forever. I'll quote one more time from Jonathan Edwards in the way that he says it so powerfully that makes the imagination really just crave to want to know more, and one day we will. This is from his sermon titled, Heaven is a World of Love. And oh, what joy will be there, springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through their wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable indeed and full of glory, joy that is humble, holy, enrapturing, and divine in its perfection. Love is always a sweet principle, and especially divine love. This, even on earth, is a spring of sweetness. But in heaven, it shall become a stream, a river, an ocean. All shall stand about the glory of God, who is the great fountain of love, opening, as it were, their very souls to be filled with those effusions of love that are poured forth from his fullness. Just as the flowers on the earth in the bright and joyous days of spring open their bosoms to the sun to be filled with his light and warmth and to flourish in beauty and fragrancy under his cheering rays. Every saint in heaven is as a flower in that garden of God. And holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor that they all send forth and with which they fill the bowers of that paradise above. Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever." 
And so all help each other to their utmost to express the love of the whole society to its glorious Father and Head and to pour back love into the great fountain of love whence they are supplied and filled with love and blessedness and glory. And thus they will love and reign in love and in that godlike joy that its blessed fruit such as eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath ever entered into the heart of man in this world to conceive. And thus in the full sunlight of the throne, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God and Christ forever and ever. I love his illustrations there. He says that we will be like a flower, and if you've watched a flower in some ways open up and point toward the sun, he says that every one of us will be like a flower in the garden of God that is always constantly opening up and receiving all the love that it can constantly hold. And he causes us then to bloom forth in love to every other person who is there. And then he goes on to say that we are like a note in a symphony or a chorus. We're all a a note of love that are then joined together with one another that makes beautiful music of love before the throne of God. And we will always be playing our song before him in his sunlight. And we'll always be increasing in love and always delighting in love in that place. And it will go on and on and on forever. Now, we don't know exactly what we'll be doing but we will be doing this while we're doing it, growing constantly in the love of God in his garden called heaven, the true garden of Eden. Makes me crave, does it you? To be there and to experience it. And Christ has won this place for you. He came from heaven to earth to win that for his people so that we can know the joy that he has always had with his father. Love drove him here to do what he did for his church. And we will experience that wonderful love together forever. This gathering here this morning, I was listening Mackie had his voice joined up here with the other voices. And I was in my office this morning, and I could hear them singing. And I thought, oh, it's beautiful. And then we come in here together, and we're singing together with all of our notes. And maybe it's not exactly beautiful and perfect here, but it's pretty good. But there, it will be perfected. And what we do here on Sunday mornings is something of a preview of heaven where we're meant to join with one another in love and praise to the God of love and experience what he has given to us that Edwards is talking about here and what this word here from the Apostle Paul tells us about. Love will never end. That's why it is the greatest. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope this morning that you will commit yourself to love. We have hindrances here that are still inside of us. We are still in sin. But God has given us the ability in his spirit to overcome sinfulness and to love one another in increasing measure until Jesus Christ comes back for us and he gives us full knowledge. I look forward to that day, and I'm sure you do too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together in 1 Corinthians 13. This is not simply fodder for a Hallmark card. This is a challenge from your word, your spirit, to your church. 
to overcome sinfulness, a desire to make much of ourselves, to make much of our Christ, and then to seek the good of our fellow neighbor in the church and out in the community. Lord, help us to be a church that loves more like this. Plant this word into our hearts and also plant the hope of heaven, the place where love will never end inside of us. And may we worship you even as we close this morning and think on your word. May we worship you and praise you for the place where you live, the place where you are bringing us back to be with yourself unhindered by sin, unstained, unscarred, not shameful or guilty in any way, having perfect, pure thoughts always and perfect and pure actions toward other people. Lord, please do make this place more like heaven, this church more like heaven while we are here. And we look forward to the day when we are in your throne room doing whatever it is you have reserved for us to do forever in love. We trust all this into your able, wise, perfect hands and mind. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.